0: new us? Not really. It is just your same old airmail editors here with another issue and another edition of Morning Meeting. Happy Saturday. I'm Ashley Baker in London.
1: And I'm Michael Haney in New York City.
0: And Michael, so much has changed and yet so much has stayed the same what are your New Year's resolutions? I need to know.
1: Oh boy, I don't like to get into resolutions. I just want to think about everything that's going to happen. I admire you because you're always such a planner and you get things done. You make your list. I watch you move through the day checking things off. So give me some inspiration.
0: Tick, tick, tick. Well, I made two resolutions this year and they're easy to remember because they're only one word each. Protein, as in eat more of it, and books, as in read more of them. So protein and books. If I just think of those two things, I hope that my quality of life will improve.
1: You can always eat a book because it's paper. It must be some protein. It's got fiber in it.
0: I'm sure there's some sort of a condition for people who eat paper. That is not what we're here to talk about today, Michael.
1: Well, we've got a lively show for you today. We've got Howard Bloom, who will join us to discuss his insights into the recent capture of Brian Koberger, the suspect in the gruesome murder of four University of Idaho. Ho students that has riveted the country for the past couple months. Then, it's been 50 years now since Robert Redford and Barbra Streisand starred in The Way We Were. It's a movie that seemed doomed at the time it was being filmed, yet it endures. And who better than James Walcott to stop by to explain how and why, despite its faults, it has become a classic. Then, A special surprise, Rita Wilson will share her answers to a few of life's most pressing questions and a few more ideas. So it's a great show. Ashley, where would you love to begin?
0: I mean, look, I thought we were going to spend this show talking about all the television shows that we watched. We really do need to have a sidebar about the White Lotus, by the way. But no, it turns out despite the holiday season and all the joys and pleasures associated with it, there was still a fair amount of hellishness in the form of all of the developments about the murder of four college students in Moscow, Idaho. This was a really awful story. I mean, I was reading the headlines about it and the reporting in the national papers as well as in outlets like People Magazine. I think we've got the best story on it that I've read, frankly, and there have been quite a few of them. It's a really intriguing look at the personalities involved, not just of the alleged killer and the victims, but also of the other personalities involved in law enforcement and elsewhere in Moscow, Idaho. So we've got Howard Bloom here, who is the author of several books, including most recently, The Spy Who Knew Too Much* an ex-CIA officer's quest through a legacy of betrayal. Welcome, Howard. All right, Howard, the rest of us were drinking champagne over the holidays and you were delving into one of the grisliest murders in modern memory. What struck you as so unique about the situation in Idaho? Well,
2: When I got to the town, that's when I was really struck by the uniqueness of the situation because it's a very bucolic little college town. Moscow, as they they point out, not Moscow, but Moscow came to life as part of the homestead by homesteaders in the 1890s. And Main Street, which is now a succession of bars and interesting restaurants, a very good Italian restaurant, in fact, is a very hip liberal place. In the middle of that, there is a fundamentalist church group, the Kirkers, and they have been brought up on charges, and they've been all through the courts uh, alleging pedophilia, also cases of rape, and they've been fighting with the Moscow Police Department. So they have this liberal quaint college town, also torn apart by this fundamentalist church group, which is expanding. They own bookstores, cafes, real estate agencies in town. They're trying to bring in people from around the country. They're trying to create a theocracy. And in the middle of all that is the University of Idaho. University of Idaho has about 11,000 students. It has wonderfully iconic buildings from the 1890s that look like your typical university of, of one's dreams. And yet, as soon as you pull up to the university in the main quad, There's a banner stretched across the main quad that the university has put up. Number one, best value in the West. It makes it seem like a a motel that, that the kids are checking into. And so it's also a bit of a party school. So all these different elements against the background of a horrific murder.
0: So when did you arrive? I mean, give us a sense of your timeline in terms of when they identified a subject. I
2: arrived on, I guess, about the 15th of December and I had just gotten back to Connecticut for sort of Boxing Day, I think, and that's when they found the subject. And I was happy for the families. I also, you know, was glad that the story now has a very possible conclusion. And any writer here, you had a villain who was, or alleged villain who was not just a monster, but he was something more complex. He's a criminal justice student. He's a, a character. That seems as if he was taken out of Alfred Hitchcock's rope, a someone who wanted to prove he could get away with the perfect crime.
1: Tell us a little bit about the chief of police, James Fry. And as you report in your story, he makes a kind of interesting, but perhaps essential move that involves, I'll just say, Sherlock Holmes and calling on people to sort of as consulting detectives. Can you just talk about how that seems to have been a pivotal moment in the investigation?
2: To start with Fry himself, Fry is about fifty. three years old. And he's a man who grew up in Idaho. He went to the University of Idaho. His two daughters went there. He's very much a part of the community. He's been a cop for 28 years, worked his way up from patrols and SWAT team to the chief. And he's a very genial guy. And he was deeply, deeply stricken by these deaths. As a father and a member of the community, it touched his core. And he is also involved in an investigation that, at times, has proved perplexing. All the FBI has been brought in. Fry, as I include in my piece, spent time studying at the FBI Academy, and he had great faith in them, but they were coming up short. So in his desperation, Fry reaches out to the public, says, share whatever you've got, any videos, any clues, whatever. And so a whole <laughs> muddle of information comes in. 20,000 tips and counting, over 3,000 videos, and an army of investigators are plotting through this. And in this muddle, they keep on you know, looking through the oysters for the one pearl. And they finally find a gas station on Troy Road, which has a security camera and actually several security cameras. And one of these cameras, just one, shows a car going pell-mell down Highway 6 and then making an abrupt turn. And this catches the attention of one of the night managers. She passes it on dutifully to Fry. And the team notes this. They're still not sure if this is what they're looking for, but it is is interesting. And they then reach out to a complex, a six-building apartment complex that's sort of near the murder house. And that had a camera on the roof and they get those tapes. And they again see this white car. And now they know that they're onto something. And they find out that in the region, there are 22,000 cars that are Hyundai Elantras from 2011 to 2013. That's, the, and that's how the FBI helps to identify the car in that area. And they start sorting through the cars. But ultimately, it's the car that helps move
1: things forward. And then as you report... He's driving cross-country, and the Brian Kohlberger is driving across the country in that car with his father. Tell us about him and your thoughts and your insights in, the, in your reporting.
2: Well, Kohlberger, at this point, for all reporters, is really a work in progress. Now, Kohlberger himself, you look at his photos, and there are all these internet sleuths saying everything about him. I wouldn't try to make such deductions from just a photograph, yet at the same time, let me say, he's a big guy. He's not slight. He seems determined. He looks like one of those guys, if you've ever played competitive sports, playing football or something, keeps on hitting after the whistle blows. He's not going to give up. You can sort of try to put yourself in the place of these poor kids having to confront someone. Perhaps it was Kohlberger in the middle of the night staring at you, waking from sleep, and he has this large knife raised in his hands. That's a scary situation. With his arrest, we've reached the end of the beginning only.
0: Well, it's an incredible story, and we thank you so much for your careful reporting of it, as well as for joining us here to talk it through.
2: I appreciate your having me. Talk soon again,
0: Hope. We will definitely talk soon. Thanks so much, Howard.
2: Bye-bye.
1: Thank you, Howard. 180 degrees on the other side of life if you are looking for something to take your mind and transport you into a different time and a different place and make you just sort of forget everything what better than a film that came out 50 years ago this year it's the way we were there's a new book out by tom santopietro called the way we were the making of a romantic classic jim walcott is here to talk about it right ashley
0: i mean if this is not an airmail story then i don't know what is i have to tell you i love robert redford in this film he is at his peak he is so sexy. It is not my favorite romantic comedy of all time, but I'm sure James Wolcott is going to make a great case for why it should be. Mr. Wolcott is a cultural critic, an editor at large for Airmail, a columnist for Airmail, and one of the best writers of his time. And we love talking to him about all sorts of things, especially 50 year old movies. Welcome, Jim. Okay, Jim, we're here to talk about one of the classic American films of our time. What do you have for us? Well,
3: where do you want to begin?
0: First of all, did you like this movie when it came out in 1973?
3: I enjoyed it. That's a lot more than you get from a lot of movies. So you enjoyed it, but you also, I mean, I recognize the absurdity of it and the choppiness of it. Because it's like Annie Hall in the sense that the couple is breaking up almost from the moment they meet. So you know they're not really... Perfect for each other, meant for each other. That is, in a way, is more interesting than the traditional Hollywood romance, where oh, we were always meant to be together, and something drew us apart, but now we're again together again forever. So I did enjoy it. And there was the star power. Redford and Streisand was a very inspired pairing.
1: So Jim, it's an inspired pairing on paper, seems to be something that's going to work out. But as you note in your review of the book this week, it had its own complications, right? Test screenings were not positive. They had to do a lot of work in the editing room. Where's some of the hurdles that Sidney Pogg the director, faced? And how did he correct to come up with this film that still endures
3: well the script was by arthur lawrence and he drew heavily on his own personal experiences because arthur lawrence had worked in radio he had also been a victim of the blacklist and he wanted to explore all of that much more and what they found out was that that sort of stuff didn't really play, but that came later. They Initially, there was difficulties of Redford and Streisand had very different ways of working. Streisand wanted to talk it all out Get everything pinpointed. And Redford was more like pulled back, wanted to feel out the scene, feel out the dialogue. And, uh, and there were moments early on where they wanted, before the shooting began, Streisand was very nervous and they wanted Redford to go talk to her. And he said no. No, he said, that's good. She should be nervous. And for one thing, you can use that for the character because the character is going to be anxious because she's a very insecure character. So use that. So they had very different ways of working. But it was basically because the main problems were they were being pulled in different directions because Lawrence wanted it to be more political, more in-depth, more detailed about the blacklist and House of Un-American Activities. And Pollock, who had, you know, he had worked as an actor and he was a very good actor. He was a terrific actor later on. He knew that it had to work on the level of human chemistry. And so and then they brought more and more writers. The book says that there were like 10 or 11 writers brought in who worked on different things, including uh, Francis Coppola. I mean, just a lot of people. And so who knows what's sprinkled in the final script? Who belonged to whom?
1: But Jim, as you know, Santo Pietro identifies three elements that tipped this film from forgettable disaster to something that's become almost like a Casablanca for a certain generation, right? Mm -hmm.
3: Well, the first one is the song, because the song just brings you into the movie right away. And one of the things you learn from the book is that it was Streisand who changed the opening word of the song. The lyric originally was, daydreams blah, 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 you know, misty watercolored memories. And she turned daydreams into memories and they worried like, oh, but it's the repetition of memories. And that's why they wanted to avoid it. It's like, no, that strengthens it. That strengthens the sense of the pull back into the past. And of course she knocked this song out of them. I mean, Streisand, when that voice starts soaring. The other thing is the star power, just the simple star power. And as I said, we take it for granted now, but the history of movies is that there are people who look phenomenal on paper as matches, but for some reason they didn't really work well. There are certain big male stars, particularly today, who really don't connect with the the actress they're working with. And for example, I mean, on paper, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, they were husband and wife, all that. But I don't hear people talking, about, oh, going back and looking at the movies they did together with any great fondness. So it was the star power. It was also the different ways of working, which made it good because Streisand's like pushing. But when when Redford delivers, his character delivers something declarative, it's very powerful. When she says to him, are you still a nice Gentile boy? And he says, I never was. I never was in the screening room where they have a fight. I, that You know, that's strong. And the red thing about Redford is, you'd never catch him overacting. And in And the third thing is the ending, because the ending is a very light landing. I don't want to go into details because some people haven't seen it, but it's very bittersweet. It's got a light touch. They have both moved on and they've made it clear they've moved on. And so it's something that they used it in Sex and the City. Carrie Bradshaw, you know, would use that hand gesture to brush away Biggs' hair, that kind of thing. And it was really perfect. A more conventional ending, I think, would have ruined the movie.
0: Jim, you could look at Robert Redford one way, right? Like, which is this heart, Robbie mm. Honk, this male protagonist, a sex symbol, if you will. But he managed to pivot his career into something quite serious, right? Like he's a very accomplished director as well as an actor and a producer and all Mm -hmm. these things. How do you think this movie helped or hurt him in that quest?
3: One of the things was it gave him, it probably gave him a certain confidence because everyone told him and everyone said, in effect, you're going to be overrun by Streisand. I mean, not necessarily personally overrun, but she dominates male co-stars through sheer force of the personality and he kind of in a way Rather than trying to rise up to meet her, he had a sort of a interesting jujitsu, which is he underplayed it. He didn't try to stand toe-to-toe. And so I'm sure that that gave him a certain confidence that he came th- through that movie and was not trampled by, uh, by the Streisand effect. But I think also he was just, he was always a very serious guy, but he was a serious guy who kept it
1: under a lid. You're making me just sort of slip through his performances in my mind, and I think as you say, with Streisand, who is this ball of fire, right? I think that Redford is always so good because he he sort of knows that dictum which is acting is reacting and a lot of his stuff is Mm -hmm. simply not speaking it's just watching what's on his face and I think you get that in this film oftentimes but it's also incredible like this is 73 so what six seven years later he's directing Ordinary People and he wins the Academy Award for that so I mean he's got that run in this that this sort of kicks off this run in the 70s -hmm. he's got The Sting shortly after this and All the President's Men and sort of like he starts to just go oh yeah it's the beginning of a great run for him in the 70s is this this film
3: oh yeah no i mean ordinary people is something that you really wouldn't have come from redford you would imagine it it could come from paul newman because paul newman was a director and he also he did kind of very small scale he could do kind of small scale humanistic drama no one knew that redford and no i mean more power to him and also there's some actors who aren't good at directing other actors and he is he clearly is very good at
0: it all right jim well 50 year old movie has never spelt so fresh thanks to you so i think we have our marching orders for what to watch this weekend okay
1: jim i just want to say it's the laughter we will remember (laughs) whenever we remember
0: i think that's true of everyone in airmail
1: it is the laughter we will remember
0: (laughs) thank you jim can't wait to talk to you about something else very soon
3: okay thanks jim
0: happy january you too okay michael i love that are you gonna go watch this movie again now this weekend Maybe
1: I am it's so funny. I was actually talking about this movie with Brooke over the break and she had never seen it. And I was recounting to her, my mother took me to see it in the theater when it came out because she wanted to see it. And of course she couldn't get a babysitter. So we ended up seeing it when I was like a wee lad, but I have my misty water memories. I'll be seeing it again. And you, it's very California.
0: It's very California. And it is so seventies. Like, I don't know if there's another film that quite encapsulates like the look of the seventies, especially the first half of that decade, quite as much yeah. as this film.
1: Robert Redford and one them walking on the beach. It's got the big California belted sweater. Good style moments. It's all there.
0: Into it. Speaking
1: of California, Ashley, and people who embody all that is great about it, you've got a special guest this week, right?
0: Okay. One of my favorite actresses of all time has now become one of my favorite singers of all time. The one and only Rita Wilson. She has been performing on screen and on stage since the 1970s. She's a singer, songwriter, actress, and producer. Frankly, she does it all. And she has a new album out called Duets. There's nothing not to love about Rita Wilson. I mean, honestly, what doesn't she do? Come on podcasts all that often. So luckily for us, we've got Rita Wilson here to talk about her new album, which is called Rita Wilson Now and Forever Duets. On it, she sings with Keith Urban. She sings with Willie Nelson, Leslie Odom Jr., Tim McGraw, Elvis Costello, Jackson Brown. I mean, it's got it all. And she is here. Welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. It's so good to be here.
0: Rita, this album's crazy for a lot of reasons. First and foremost, Your voice is incredible, but your collaborators on this, I want to know how this came together. And then how did you go about getting all these people to collaborate with you and recording all of this? Tell us about the process.
4: I love the 70s. I love that the music from the 70s. And I was one day just thinking about how much I loved it and then was confronted with the shock fact that the 70s are now 50 years old, (laughs) which to me is just mind boggling because no, how is that even possible? And then that got me thinking about the Great American Songbook, which is even older. So then I started thinking about the Great American Songbook and making a connection to why the songs from the 70s have endured and have lasted as long as they have, much like the Great American Songbook. The Great American Songbook, so many of those songs were written for musicals, for Broadway, and they had a very specific point of view, which was many of the songs were sung from one person's point of view in the play, in the musical. And the 70s sort of was the beginning of the emergence of the singer songwriter. Up until then, we had all these amazing bands that were playing and songwriters would write for those bands or write for those artists. But with the emergence of Carole King, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Stevie Nicks, Jackson Brown, now we have again singing from this first person point of view. And I thought, oh, I wonder if this is a connection that's, I have no idea if it's legit or not, but this is my own we theory on why the seventies are still so good. <laughs>
0: You have a dream list of collaborators. One of my favorites on the album is Fire, which is a Bruce Springsteen song that you recorded with Elvis Costello. You have a relationship with Springsteen, right? Like you're a Springsteen fan, certainly. Tell us a little bit about what that song means to you.
4: Well, I love that song. And that song has been a part of sort of my life since it came out in the late 70s. And the Pointer Sisters covered it. Bruce has been very inspiring to me in my journey as a songwriter and as a performer, because one day we were having a conversation about music, about songwriting. He was really going into detail about his creative process and how he writes and approaches his songs. And I waited for a pause and then I asked him, okay, I have a question. What makes me think that I can start writing now when you've been writing all your life? And without hesitation, he said, because creativity is time independent. And when he said that, it was just like a cannon went off in my psyche because I've always believed that there's no no time frame to creativity. And him saying that was absolutely true. And it just got me thinking, who's to say that, oh, your window was in the, your 20s or your window was in your teens and that's passed you by. And I really loved that that was something... That I could actually grab onto as reassurance that I was it was okay for me to be on that path as a songwriter.
1: Rita, you mentioned writing songs and if I'm not mistaken your most recent appears now on a soundtrack of a film of someone you know apparently right maybe i have
4: a little familiarity
1: (laughs) a man called is it otto or otto i want to say otto but it's a man called. well
4: that's a very good question because it's pronounced in different ways even in the movie
1: (laughs) right but this is the new film with tom hanks and you've written the theme song
4: the song is called till your home till your home and it's from the movie a man called otto starring tom hanks a movie that I was lucky enough to produce and I sing it with Sebastian Yatra, who's an incredible Latin artist. And I, my co writer on that was, is a great writer called David Hodges.
0: We are getting a lot of buzz that this is on the shortlist for best original song. Do you care to comment?
4: It is definitely, that is an accurate fact that it is on the shortlist. There's a shortlist and we're on it. That's from, I believe, 82 songs. It gets, down to 15. And then from those 15 songs, the five that actually are nominated are selected. So that's what I guess the goal is, right? To get an Oscar nomination.
1: You strike me as someone who probably slays it at karaoke. So what, give us like Everyone's always like they're looking for their perfect karaoke song. And like, what would you advise people to use as a karaoke song?
4: I now have a karaoke secret weapon. So if there is karaoke, I just do this song. And it's Hip Hop Hooray by Naughty by Nature. And it is my go-to. I everybody thinks, oh my God, she can spit some flow, but the truth is I had to learn it for a movie. <laughs> I had to learn it. It took me a month to learn it. But it's a very good secret weapon in the karaoke world. Just pull that out.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, Rita, thank you so much for joining us. For those who missed Rita at the Carlisle, Rita, you're going to be back performing soon, right? Hopefully at the Oscars. But if if not, we will check your website, RitaWilson.com, for all the latest and greatest news. And congratulations, not only on your fabulous album, but on this exciting song and its exciting trajectory.
4: Thank you so much, you guys. Really appreciate it. Bye, Rita. Thanks so much. Bye.
0: Love her. That was fun. Love her, love her, love her. Yeah, Tom Hanks, you're a lucky man. Michael, before we go off into the good weekend, I think we need to talk about the two most important shows of our time, The White Lotus, Season 2, as well as Season 5 of The Crown, which we have not discussed on here because we were pacing ourselves, but now is the moment.
1: Yeah, okay, let's do a little recap of those shows and then we'll do some recommends, okay?
0: Fine, okay.
1: So where do you want to start?
0: Well, we should start with The Crown. You are our resident expert in The Crown. Was it everything you dreamed of and more?
1: I'm here to say there were a lot of haters. Everyone didn't like it, didn't like Elizabeth, I didn't like Charles. I gotta tell, you, like i thought there were some obviously un peter morgan-esque really heavy handed metaphors as everyone has pointed out from the ship of state to different things but i gotta tell you i think the elizabeth de portrayal of diana and i think especially the episode with charles and diana and the breakup of their marriage and the scene of them making an omelet in her kitchen i thought it was some of the best writing and some of the best performance in the whole run of the thing so i thought it was you know really good. Like I said, with a few missteps on Peter Morgan's part that I could quibble with in terms of the writing, but I thought especially to Becky and her portrayal and I even thought the, the storyline they had with Dodi Fayed and how that had worked. It was terrific. So I'm all in. I got a little tired of Dominic West biting his lip. Yes, I'll admit it, but I'm an enthusiastic yay. And you? How about you?
0: I thought to was more Diana than Diana. Oh, my. She nailed it. She nailed it. I mean, the eyes, the expression, the, the deer in headlights, the doe The Doe-like demeanor, it was incredible. She wore clothes very well. Fashion was incredible. I was rethinking my entire wardrobe. I think it did a great job, too, of sort of reminding us, especially in the context of all this Harry and Meghan stuff that's happening right now in the news, including, by the way, Harry's book, which we will be talking about next week. I thought it was interesting to get some more insight into their adolescence and their relationship with the Queen, especially William being at Eton and having tea with her. And, you know, you just kind of forget that those things happened. But I thought that was a very profound take on it i can't wait for season six do we have to wait another year it's going to be the last season so you and i are going to have to watch it together episode by episode it will likely come out in 2023 probably towards the end of the year would be my guess it doesn't seem like they have started filming yeah okay now we have to talk about the white lotus for two minutes okay i need to know michael white lotus good bad or ugly
1: (sighs) boring. Boring? Boring. I was bored by long stretches of it. I felt it was like weirdly self-indulgent at times and I just wanted to be like, come on, come on, get on with it. I just felt like I got antsy. It was a lot of talky and strange and I think looking back at the totality of the season, I think that he made a real mistake by bringing Jennifer Coolidge back. I think that it's sort of like everything had to revolve around her and she was super popular in the first one. I get it, bring back the thing that was kind of like the lucky charm, but I don't know. In watching it, it just seemed like it was really drawn out and I wouldn't watch it again it was fine I thought Aubrey Plaza was great and I liked the young cabaret singer who took over for the bar I thought she was great but I don't know I just felt a little like it was a little strung out at times or drawn out at times but I have you to correct all my impressions so tell me what I should think
0: Well, I mean, now you're kind of ruining it for me. I thought it was quite brilliant. I'm going to use that word. Sorry. I loved it. I thought he's an incredible writer, Mike White. And I thought there were so many memorable lines of dialogue, especially in terms of conversations about relationships and love and sex and the transactional nature of all of those things. I agree with you on one point. I thought visually it was a bit heavy handed. I saw enough shots of crashing waves and Sicilian sculpture and paintings like the visual tropes to me were a little bit tired, especially by the end.
1: If I had to see a a shot of the Moor's head one more time, I'm like, I get it. He had more metaphor, like more symbolism put in there than than Peter Morgan. So that was like, I get it. I get it.
0: Okay. Yes, fine. Agree. Mike White, we're taking you to task with that. But I don't know. I thought that the writing was pretty incredible. But I really liked what he was doing, the way that he explored sex in the movie. like The way that the bodies of the characters almost became these transactional objects that were passed back and forth. I found that very interesting and provocative. All right, Michael. Now, anything at all you can recommend?
1: I do, like more than a few of you. Over the break, I caught up on movies that came out recently, and my favorite that I've come across so far is Tar, the stylish new thriller directed by Todd Fields that stars Kate Blanchett as the imperious maestro of a German orchestra whose command over the lives of those who serve under her baton proves to be self-destructive, abusive, and toxic. Blanchett, who has already won two oscars is scarily incredible in this performance and seems to me to be the person to beat if she's to be kept from winning her third oscar she's absolutely incredible in giving a performance that's all about art versus power and what a person with power does to keep it what they do with it and how it can ultimately undo them and you ashley
0: michael yes i do have something to recommend. not just the white lotus so there's a new television show that's been out for about five years in the uk but it just arrived on netflix it's called motherland it is a sitcom that's set in london and it well let's just say it's all about the trials and tribulations of motherhood and it is hysterical it's about a group of mothers and that's all i'm going to tell you about it because it is so funny and full of so many mishaps and so much comedy it's directed by juliette may and it was created by well it was co-created by my favorite sharon horgan love you sharon so you know it's going to be good it's on netflix now it's called motherland there are three seasons of it and It's highly recommended for January binge watching, especially if you are in the particular phase of life of mothering young children. Well, with that, we wish you a wonderful weekend. Michael, will you please read us out?
1: Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting in the meantime, time, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.